I would like to welcome everyone to today's show, Truth, the Reality Under the Headline. And today's guest is Michael Sugru. And Michael was actually, he retired as a captain of the United States Air Force and then went into law enforcement at Walnut Creek Police Department and retired as a patrol sergeant from there. Michael's career, you know, he always had the passion about law enforcement, you know, from a very young age. And then, you know, furtherance in that as well. And upon retirement, you know, Michael is very, very, very big advocate of PTSI, PTSD, and for awareness and suicide prevention for first responder suicide and everything alike. And, you know, currently Michael is, you know, he's an actual ambassador for Save a Warrior uh, program. And across the bottom of the screen, you're going to see all the different websites and everything else that you can access, or even with the actual first responder network, if you yourself wanted to volunteer and be a part of that, you know, to provide the different outreach services for, you know, soldiers, law enforcement, first responders alike, you can go on there and actually view their volunteer requirements. And the first in wellness, he's an advisory board member. And a lot of this we're going to get into once we bring Michael on, and kind of review what it is that he does with each one of these organizations and you know how you could be a part of it and to actually have an outreach for veterans, law enforcement and first responders. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is in correlation with passion. You know, so whether it's something that we enjoy for our careers or anything else, you know, passion is what's going to be that we fall in love with. Okay, so just like with personal lives or our careers, you know, if your passion isn't being fulfilled, you'll fall out of love with that. Okay. So it's, it's important for individuals to know, you know, what it is that they have a passion about and how they're going to fulfill that. So as individuals seek their careers about helping individuals, for instance. Okay. So when somebody goes into the field of being a first responder, okay, that overall psych is in that of protecting others, providing for others, saving lives, okay? So in going into that field, a lot of us kind of take for granted what they're exposed to on a daily basis, okay? And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. But, you know, a lot of what an individual is exposed to, it sticks with them. And especially in law enforcement, when an individual is going call to call to call, you know, they're not really able to process or kind of cope with the last incident that they just handled because they just went to another critical incident, let's say. So what happens is all of that just sits and it sits and it sits. The same thing with military personnel, military veterans. You know, a lot of them today, regardless if it was yesterday or 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, those instances, instances excuse me, can still replay in the mind as if it was a minute ago, okay? And what does somebody do to kind of flush that mental compression that they may be having, you know? And suicide amongst law enforcement personnel, suicide amongst military first responders, it's, it's at an alarming, alarming, alarming rate. You know, a lot of individuals, you know, in these careers, they, they carry that persona where they have to be strong so that they're able to be 
the protector for you, I, our families, our businesses, and everything alike. Okay. So when you're trying to maintain that persona of being protector, you know, a lot of times we don't want to admit that things bother us, you know? So as you're progressing along in your career and <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, excuse me. But, you know, as you progress along in your career, and like I said, you're going call to call to call on instances of trauma, okay? And not being able to deal with that, not being able to talk to your superiors, not being able to talk to even your family, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we are, you know, law enforcement officers or, you know, EMTs, first responders, don't share that trauma with family, friends, or anything like that, because they don't want to expose them to that. You know, even though, you know, we as individuals know that these types of things happen, we really do not understand the complexity or the magnitude of these circumstances and events that first responders see on a day-to-day -day basis, even military personnel, okay? And that's what Michael's passion is, is the fact of providing that avenue for individuals that just have that mental compression to have someone to reach out to. You know, a lot of people think that they don't have anyone to talk to. You know, where do we turn? We don't want to let individuals know we're weak, you know, and, you know, speaking to a counselor or reaching out for help isn't a sign of being weak. That's, that's a sign of being strong, knowing that you want to progress, knowing that you want to better yourself, knowing that you want to maintain that mental strength. You know, reaching out to a counselor or a peer of someone to speak to is no different than you actually going to the gym to work on your physical health. Okay. So individuals that are afraid to, to reach out or they don't know what to say when they reach out, just have it as a general conversation. You know, I mean, if, if you're in law enforcement, you know, everybody knows about buddy check and everything else, whether it's, you know, law enforcement, military, ask somebody, hey, how's your day going? Anything, anything weighing heavy on you right now? Hey, how'd that last call go for you? You know, starting it with a general conversation is a lot of times going to be that avenue that's going to make somebody open up to you. Okay. So, you know, in following our passions, you know, kind of going back to that. So, you know, Michael from a very young age, you know, I, I think it's, you know, age five or whatever of, you know, him always sitting around playing with, you know, toy soldiers and even for Halloween, you know, at the ages of seven and eight, dressing up as a soldier. You know, I mean, he's always had that passion of service from childhood. Okay. Now, how, how do you maintain that passion and how do you keep feeding your passions? It's simple things like that. You know, keeping your mind fresh and just, you know, interacting in the certain things. Okay. And then, you know, so when he joined the military and went into the U United States Air Force, okay, and, and progressed as a captain, you know, he was also uh, the Fe uh, Special Security Forces Phoenix Raven with the identifier 1173. Okay. And that was kind of what led into civilian law enforcement. Okay. But it was that passion just to continue and continuous and continuous feed into that. So a lot of times what happens is when individuals step out of their career and not having that fulfillment of being able to provide for others, 
that plays a large role on an individual's mental state as well. Okay. So in talking to others, communicating with others, a lot of times that will feed that passion because what happens if you don't feed that passion, you, you feel lost and at a loss to where, you know, a lot of individuals may not be able to reach out. A lot of individuals may feel restricted. A lot of individuals may feel withdrawn from their families. And you see divorce rates amongst first responders, law enforcement, military personnel, that also an alarming high rate. And, you know, having that loss to where you're already dealing with so much mental compression on the job. Now you have that personal life with all of that compression. Now the fear of like, you know, losing the only other family that you have, it, it plays a large, large, large role in someone's mental state. And I'm sure you all, I'm sure you all understand that, you know, so if you're in that field doing a buddy check, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be forced, but I mean, it should just be, you already have a passion or you wouldn't be in the field that you're in. So all you do is just, you know, make sure that you're maintaining those around you. You know, a lot of times when officers or, you know, first responders retire, what happens? You know, a lot of the brothers and sisters that they once served with are no longer in that communication. So that that, that sense of family is lost. So it is almost a form of divorce to where they lose their family, you know, and I know a lot of individuals won't be able to comprehend the magnitude of that, but it's, it's something that you have to be able to understand, whether it's your personal family, whether it's your business, you know, individuals that own a business, you know, doing that buddy check on your employees. I mean, they're the ones that are enabling you to have the success that you're having. So it, it is that same sense to where, you know, individuals that keep walking in and feeling unappreciated, it's the same thing of a spouse of a first responder to where they feel unappreciated because of the it's always the work and they feel withdrawn because there's nothing that, that individuals aren't sharing. But, you know, some things we don't share with others because of the fact of how much trauma was involved within that. And so it's it's also hard to, to turn off that switch. OK, once, once you're engaged in this field, in this career, it's hard to turn that switch off, you know? So if once retired, you know, you're still always gonna have that sense when you see something happening, you know, you're either wanting to help or you see someone that's up to no good in the profiling aspect of things. Because, you know, once you're in law enforcement, that, that profiling mentality is always gonna stick with you. You know, a lot of, you know, sit with the backs to the wall to where you can see what's going on. You're going to, you know, study people's mannerisms. And that's also important to train, you know, family and, you know, children, and everything else as well, too, to be able to sit there and, you know, have that predictive mentality to where you're able to train them on a sense of profiling, in, you know, in a sense, you know, because it's, it's, it's part of the job. It's part of not even just a job, but it's a part of, you know, maintaining security and safety for all of us. Okay. You know, so as a peacekeeper, when that switches, you know, essentially turned off as a career, how do you maintain that movement forward? You know, and a lot of that is with the interaction with other fellow officers, brothers, sisters, or like first responders, military. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to be speaking about with Michael today as well 
is in, you know, what he not necessarily like what he sees from the individuals that do reach out because he does go around nationally and does speak, you know, for different law enforcement agencies and everything else as well to kind of get them to understand that it's okay to reach out. It's okay to speak up because, you know, if an individual isn't saying something, okay. A lot of individuals try to mask the pain that they have with smiles and when they're really suffering inside. So that, that's another thing that within training that we have to learn to do is being able to recognize, you know, the suffrage of other individuals as well, being able to pinpoint that, hey, you know, something's a little off. And when you don't necessarily have to be like, oh, is anything, but you still want to be direct. You know, you, you don't want to kind of beat around the bush like everything. OK, tell somebody that, hey, I'm, I'm noticing this in you. You know, it's I mean, you're not thinking about suicide, are you? I mean, be direct about it because, you know, you can in you should be able to, like, notice individuals mannerisms, the way that they respond or, you know, kind of feeling distant or withdrawn to be able to kind of, you know, pinpoint that and work with them and guide them through. OK, and you got to it's very important that we're able to understand that mental health, suicide and everything else is not just restricted to individuals in these careers. I mean, everyone viewing this, everyone at home, you, you have to know that mental health is alive and well with everyone. You know, there's always something that we need to talk about. We're social beings. OK, so being comfortable and being able to reach out to individuals, it's key. Being able to recognize the mannerisms, the behaviors, the the lack of you know personality and things like that in individuals, to be able to address them, reach out to them, and just to make sure that everybody you know is on an even keel. And I want everyone you know viewing that. If you guys do have questions, you know, guess we'll be bringing Michael on here about another 15 minutes. And I want you to have questions ready. I want you to address certain things that you yourself go through or that you may see family, friends or those you serve with and just, you know, kind of ask about how to approach them, because it is going to be vital in the actual not just raising the awareness, but being able to address these issues and being able to, you know, help other individuals progress forward. And one of the one of the big topics that we're going to discuss with him is as well is he's he's about to launch a new book. I think he has, you know, a couple chapters left and we'll discuss that with him here shortly, but you know, he's going to be releasing his uh, new book, The Relentless Courage, Winning the Fight Against Frontline Trauma, you know, and the title itself speaks volumes, you know, and encapsulates everything in which, you know, that we as family, we as the actual officers, we as, you know, the actual first responder personnel, military personnel that, being courageous is speaking out and sharing to others what it is that you're going through. Okay. We, we have to, have to, have to, 
keep that clean bill of health for ourselves mentally. You know, and again, as I stated before, you know, speaking out and talking to a counselor is no different than you going to the gym for your physical health, because the clean mental health is going to keep us progressing for our physical health or everything else. You know, stress tears down the body, depression tears down the body as if us just not working out. So us keeping, you know, that strong mental health, it, it's vital to our lives, period. Okay. So in seeing others, just as if you've seen somebody else that was physically working out, we also have to help people mentally work out. Okay. And then, so some of the things that we're going to talk about with Michael is in that of, again, how do we approach others? How do we recognize, you know, those around us, our family, our friends, our coworkers, or our service brothers and sisters to be able to address them before it gets it, it progresses too far down as it declines, you know, and each of us, you know, whether we're retired or we're still serving, you know, we should all be advocates for awareness. Okay. I mean, it's the, when, when you're day after day, all you see is trauma. Okay. It's, you couldn't be a human being if some of the things that you're exposed to don't bother you. Okay talk to somebody, you know, it doesn't have to be immediately because one of the things that is important as well is allowing that to process, give yourself time, you know, whether it be 24 hours, 72 hours. Okay. Let it process. And then that way lets that emotion, you know, truly develop that way you have a clear conscience when you're actually speaking to another individual or reaching out about a specific thing, you know, start a, uh, a group to where, you know, you and your fellow brothers and sisters just, you know, go meet for lunch, go meet for dinner, just go have a drink somewhere, you know, just to be able to get some of the things off your chest and talk about it, you know, because, you know, leading by example, I don't care what career you're in, leading by example is going to be the fastest way to get individuals to follow in your steps. Okay. So, you know, speaking up, admitting certain things, discussing with other individuals, things that you've been through that they can kind of, you know, relate the call that they took and how it relates to what you just went through. Okay. So, you know, and, and personal relation is always going to be the easiest way to make another individual comfortable. You know, it's why when you look at different support groups, you know, you look at the AAs, the NAs and the, <clears throat> the different, talk groups around the world, the reason why individuals are comfortable going in there is for that simple reality, is that individuals feel more comfortable speaking to someone that's saying, hey, this bothers me too. It doesn't make me weak. It's making me stronger because the more that I can discuss and deal with my mental health, the stronger I'm going to be mentally, physically, all the way across the board. Okay. And you'll start seeing that improvement in your life. You'll start seeing that improvement in your job. You're going to start seeing that the more individuals being comfortable in speaking with you, reaching out to you, coming to you for advice, coming to you with their problems. And that's what matters. Okay. It's one thing to raise awareness. Okay. To where, I mean, people know shit happens. It's foreknowledge, right? But with, 
what happens when someone needs to reach out. That's what people need to know. That's the awareness that we need to start addressing is that, hey, look, you know, when, when things are in a downtrodden time, you know, these are the individuals you need to reach out to. You know, talking to a dog, it may listen, but it can't respond. It can't give you any kind of positive feedback. Talking to the wall or anything, it, there's no positive feedback. You know, a lot of times, you want to find somebody that's like-minded because if it's a like-minded individual or a like-careered individual, nine times out of 10, or well, let's say like seven times out of 10, they've probably experienced the same type of instance that is bothering you, okay? So the more you speak up and the more you make others aware that you've been through certain things, the more comfortable they are going to be in reaching out to you, okay? And when when dealing with individuals in these careers first responders okay again like with law enforcement they are dealing with i'm not going to say all the time every call you know because sometimes they might respond to a call of an individual it just it, it's a happenstance but you have to figure that with law enforcement and military okay you're dealing with the worst of the worst of individuals okay so no matter how pessimistic or optimistic you may have been going into this career when all you see day after day after day after day is trauma it can turn that optimist into a pessimist and that's one of the things we're going to be speaking about with michael as well too is you know how much effect that, that played on him because again you know you're taking an individual that since the age of five, you know, was <laughs> had this passion about joining and having this career and then joining that career like, oh, hey, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, you know, but and, and how do you deal with that upon, you know, because Michael medically retired in 2018. OK, you know, he, he was awarded the uh, Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his uh, heroic and life saving actions and a police officer involved shooting in 2012, you know, so you have to take that into consideration as well, too, that you take an individual that in a split second was able to make a decision that you know, saved another's life. But then also playing in the mind, you know, how, how do you keep that scale balanced to where a life may have been saved, but being exposed to that tragedy and then having to go respond to another call? You know, and how do you keep that on an even scale all the way across the board and maintain a passion about something, maintain a passion or faith in humanity that humanity is good when all you're seeing again is the worst of the worst day after day after day, you know, and and so that that is one of the main reasons why. You know, we as officers, anybody, we have to reach out to individuals to make individuals understand that it's okay to talk about things. You have to talk about things because if you don't, everything is just going to continue to be that mental compression to where you feel that nobody's there, to where you feel nobody's going to listen, to where you feel no one cares because, you know, you may have that fear about a superior or, you know, a, a supervisor that you may not be fit for the job. So there's so much mental compression that a lot of individuals on the sidelines don't take into consideration. 
you know, we always want to say, well, hey, it should be done this way. It should be done that way. And it's all good and gravy when you're looking at it in that sense. But how do you, you know, when you are that officer, know how to present it to other individuals? You know, because, you know, in the law enforcement community, you know, the superiors are not supposed to, I'm not going to say are supposed to, but they don't interact with fellow officers, you know, because they, I'm not going to say conflict of interest, but it's the, the, the separation of powers. Okay. So what happens? So, you know, the officers have to speak to fellow officers, speak to the peers. And that's why, you know, I, I love the whole peer aspect of everything. You know, we had John Hall as a guest the other day, and it was one of the things that he brought up as far as like having a, superior, a peer support group within all the different agencies across the nation, because it is important, you know, because nobody wants to be seen walking into psych or, you know, to be like, oh, there he goes, you know, talking to the head shrink again. But, you know, if we have a peer network to where we're able to talk to fellow brothers, fellow sisters, to where it's like, hey, shit's bothering me, because it's going to. You know, and there's always going to be a next incident. Every day that you go into work, you're, you know there's going to be an incident. You know, job security. <laughs> there, there would not be a job to go to if the bottom of the bottom didn't exist. You know, so maintaining that, that mental strength is vital. Okay. And speaking to others and speaking out creates that strength. It doesn't make you weak. Okay. And... Before you begin the careers, before you fulfill that passion, let's say, okay, it, it's important. And, and that's why, you know, I, I love the fact of what Michael does because it exposes people to real life. You know, when someone signs up to go to the academy, you know, you're trained on a lot of levels, you know, but that real life instance of having to deal with the actual mental trauma that you're going to be exposed to maybe not every day but you're going to be exposed to it okay so having that knowledge being given to the cadets or you know military personnel you know first going in it's vital okay and the relentless courage aspect of it is yes being able to have that physicality toughness but that physicality toughness is going to do no one any good if you are not mentally as tough as you are physically, you know, and then the frontline trauma aspect of it. And I'm going to let Mike describe, Michael describe it a little bit more. because He's the one that wrote the book. I'm just saying I'm taking the title and making what it is of what I see. Okay. Because frontline trauma is going to be real. It's not going to be something that might happen. Okay. When you join to be, to fulfill a career of law enforcement, first responder, military, EMT, fire, I don't care where you're at in a first responder field, you are going to be exposed to frontline trauma. Maybe not every day, but you're going to be exposed to that trauma. So how do you deal with that trauma? Who are you going to talk to about that trauma? Oh, I'll just talk to my family. It's not going to work just talking about bringing it home all the time, because what's going to happen? You know, and then a lot of times individuals, because of that very reason, they really don't want to share with, you know, their personal family members because they don't want to put that weight on them. So what happens? We store that weight ourselves. OK, 
So if we don't have a peer network to speak with, if we don't have a supervisor to speak with, if we don't have someone to speak with, it, it becomes a very, very, very tough road. Okay. And that's why I encourage anyone that if you have things going on, find someone to reach out to, find someone, you know, there, it's, don't give up on yourself. You've given too much to everyone around you to give up on yourself, you know, and the, the struggles may be heavy at times, but there's been others that have had some heavy struggles as well. I'm not going to say that an individual that may have experienced the same struggle may have the same weight as it may have on you, but we've all had struggles. We've all had adversities, you know, and, it may be that your struggle, your adversity may be what another individual needs to hear about so that they're able to strengthen themselves mentally so that they can progress forward. And by them progressing forward, it's also going to provide others that outreach, others that comfort to speak to someone instead of giving up. Okay. And Michael should be joining us here soon. So again, I encourage anyone that if you're, wanting to join in on the interview because you have questions for Michael, you know, feel free to, to join the link for the StreamYard. The StreamYard link is going to be the one if you actually want to be a part of the actual interview and speaking. On the Facebook, if you're in a group, you're going to have to okay and give Facebook permission to show your name if you want to make comments. So if you want to make the comments during the during this interview, during this show, just simply make sure that you provide the permissions for Facebook so that your comments are visible for us on the show here. And without further delay, Sergeant Michael Screw. Michael, good evening. Hey, how are you doing? I'm blessed. Thank you for asking. And am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Uh, Sugru. Sugru. Okay, perfect. So how's everything going? Good. Just glad to be here today to talk to you. Hopefully we can uh, bring up some good topics and get some good questions from other people that are joining us. Yes, sir. And I kind of gave a, a brief introduction. It's kind of kind of hard to cover the, the vast career that you've had. And, you know, with I want to say, I mean, first and foremost, you know, thank you for joining us tonight because, you know, there's so many that need to hear what you've been through, what you took from what you've been through and progressing forward. And, you know, more importantly, you know, I want to say thank you for your service then, now, and what you continue to do and your plans for, you know, moving forward in the future as well, too. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you want to go into, I, I kind of gave them a briefing about, you know, as the, as a kid, you know, you having the passion because I believe passion, you know, carries us all in what it is that we do. And, you know, what actually led into, you know, when you joined the United States Air Force and everything as well, that led you into civilian law enforcement? You know, honestly, it just goes all the way back to my childhood. My stepfather, who's the one that raised me, he was in law enforcement and I looked up to him from the very beginning and at an early age, at the age of eight, I actually became a police volunteer for an agency here in Northern California. And that's really what 
got the itch started. That's where I saw this family, this camaraderie. I saw the excitement and I was just immediately drawn in. And I knew from that point on that this is what I was going to do. And so after that, it was just a matter of setting things up so that I could do it. And so eventually I was a police explorer in high school. In college, I studied criminal justice and I ended up going into the Air Force in military police and immediately transitioned after that into civilian law enforcement. So, I mean, as far back as I can literally remember, it's been a dream of mine to be in law enforcement. Awesome. And thank you for that decision. Now, during your career, which you know was pretty extensive again, at what point during your career did the, the passion about the mental health and the awareness aspect come into your life as far as that thought? Honestly, that came when my career was almost over. So I was involved in a fatal shooting as a brand new patrol sergeant back in December of 2012. And immediately after that, my life started to change in very drastic ways. But because of the culture, because of the stigma, I never asked for help. I literally just suffered in silence and thought things were going to get better. And, you know, my nightmares would magically stop and it would just all go away. But what happened was things just got much and much worse to the point where I lost my marriage. I started putting myself in dangerous situations at work, hoping literally that I died in the line of duty. I just didn't care anymore. And what it took was my best friend, who was a Vietnam veteran, he was also a reserve officer for 35 years. He was my partner. He actually tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And that experience, that guilt that I felt when that happened and when I saw the effects that it had on his family, on his sister, on me personally, on other coworkers, I just knew that I couldn't do that to my daughter. And that's all I could think about was, what is my daughter going to think about? What is she going to go through? And I just couldn't allow that. And so, you know, thank God he's alive today. But by him trying to take his own life, he literally gave me the strength and courage to finally ask for help. And that was after four years of suffering and silence. And so my passion, my drive for mental health awareness literally started with my own personal journey of recovery, which was in December of 2017. And I've been on that journey ever since. I'm still on it. And I've been involved in several different programs. I've done several different things. And this is my new calling. You know, before it was, my calling was to serve in law enforcement. And now I truly believe that my calling is to help others. Well, you know, essentially you still are, you know, serving in law enforcement, you know, essentially, I mean, because, you know, what you do and you strengthening officers that currently serve is service, servicing law enforcement or serving in law enforcement today, rather, you know what I mean? It's the, I mean, and what you do today, I'm not going to say it's a greater purpose, but it really is. I mean, you're, cause you're affecting individuals on a larger scale than you, than you would, as a law enforcement officer, you know, as a law enforcement officer, you know, we may be able to, you know, save one or two lives, you know, in a day or in our careers. Whereas, you know, what you do now, essentially, potentially you're saving lives 
on a day-to-day basis on a larger scale and it's vital you know and it's just that that mental health strength is as important as that physical strength that you agree or i mean it's so it's it's vital what you do and in what you do how many individuals that do reach out are you the you the first person they reach out to or how many tell you that oh hey this is the first time that i did this or how many individuals were restricted from reaching out because they felt you know pullback or anything from actually asking for help because i'm sure you can you know you can attest to you know how hard it was to actually ask for help correct or oh it was the hardest i mean thing i've ever done in my life and you know i was so ashamed and so embarrassed And now I look at it through my growth and my recovery, and I realize that it was the bravest and most courageous thing I've ever done. I mean, nothing that I did in the Air Force, nothing I did on the streets, but literally it was me raising my hand asking for help. But it took years of work and recovery to even realize that, to even see that perspective. And, you know, to fast forward my journey in 2019, I had an officer who I didn't know, a former police officer who was also here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he reached out to me and wanted me to do an interview. And I never thought about it. I didn't want to do it. And literally, he harassed me for like a year. And, And finally, he's like, look, I will drive up to you. I will set everything up. I just need an hour of your time. And that's it. And so he locked me in, and I agreed to do it. And I remember he met me at a Mimi's cafe. He already had cameras set up, a laptop, headphones. I thought we were going to get to know each other, have a good conversation, have some breakfast. And he's like, look, I'm in a hurry. I got to be out of here an hour. So we're just going to do this. And literally, we just had a conversation. And the powerful thing about that was, is that I was able to share things that, you know, I just hadn't shared before in any kind of public forum. And so when he actually shared that podcast, I started getting messages literally from all over the world, from first responders, from military veterans who, you know, started to share their stories with me because something that I said resonated with them and they could relate to it and they can understand it. And, you know, the simple truth is I'm not special. I'm not unique at all. I mean, literally there are thousands and thousands of my brothers and sisters out there who are suffering in silence and they've been exposed to trauma over and over and over in many cases for 20, 30 years at a time. And so I'm just putting myself out there as an example to say, look, I almost lost everything. I almost lost my life because I didn't ask for help because I was scared because I was ashamed because that's what the culture makes us believe. But now I'm here on the other side of that living proof that life can be better. And my life is better now than it ever has been. And I can also say just as a human being, I think I'm a better person. I have a different perspective on the world, on life. I look at things much differently. It's not black and white. There's so much gray out there and there's so many people suffering. And and so, you know, getting those messages, having people share that with me, it's healing for me as well because it just reinforces the fact that I'm not alone. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. What we're experiencing is normal. The fact is that we are human beings and this is a normal reaction to trauma. But unfortunately, first responders were exposed to more trauma than just about anybody else. 
I mean, literally, you can you can imagine anywhere from a hundred to upwards of eight hundred traumatic incidents in a career, whereas the average citizen may have one or two in a lifetime if they have any at all. I was about to say, if that, I mean, it's a lot of people can't fathom that. You know, sitting on the sidelines, it's like, well, hey, that's what you signed up for. You know, and a, you know, a lot of individuals, you know, even myself at times, you know, take for granted the liberties and freedoms that exist because of law enforcement, first responders, military. You know, it's like it becomes unbelievable to whereas the things don't exist. You might turn on the, the news and, and see that trauma and tragedies that happen. But like you just said, you know, how many individuals have experienced like true trauma in their lifetime outside of the loss of a family member? You know what I mean? So it's it, it's next to none. It really is, you know, and it, it's commendable on, you know, how you were able to do that, what you've taken with that, because it wasn't just that, you know, you reached out and asked for help. It's that once you realize that that help was there, you received the help. You took that experience and was able to recognize that. And now you're sharing that with so many others, you know, and and especially with the writing of the book. So if you want to get into like how much of the before and you knowing that you needed that help and then finally asking for the help, at what point were you, were you convinced yourself that, you know what, I need to put this on paper so that other brothers and sisters or, you know, anyone out there can understand that it's okay to ask for help. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's not something I ever planned on or thought would actually happen. And, you know, doing all these interviews, I've done over 25 interviews all over the world. And I've actually had a few people that reach out to me or ask me like, why don't you write a book? You know, why don't you, um, you know, put this out there so everybody can read it and learn from it. And I just literally got so burnt out, so fatigued from the job and from all the report writing and all the stress that I just didn't think I had it in me to, to write a book. And what happened was over a year ago, a good friend of mine, her name is Dr. Shauna Springer. She's a very well-known psychologist. She's a published author. She's already written three books. She's a national speaker and she's devoted her life and her career to helping military combat veterans and first responders. And when she came to me and we had talked about it and months later, we kind of re-engaged and she literally offered to write my story for me. And it was, I don't know, you know, it was a godsend. I literally didn't think this would happen. And so we decided to write together and, you know, the book is almost done. It's going to be 14 chapters. We have 12 chapters down now. The Relentless Courage, Winning the Fight Against Frontline Trauma. And the structure of the book is that every chapter is going to be my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood till actual present day. And the second part of every single chapter is going to have a distinctly separate section where Dr. Shauna Springer is going to put her insights, her observations, her recommendations you know, in a global sense, so that anybody reading this book, whether you're a family member, whether you're just a person on the street or you're a veteran or a first responder, that you're going to get it. You're going to understand it. And the whole point of this book is to show the human side of being a first responder and to show 
the effect that this job, this career, this calling that we have, that not only it has on us, but that it has on our loved ones, on our spouses, on our children, and how we can make that better. And we're also in the book going to talk about how do we move forward? How do we change the culture? How do we improve, you know, this stigma? How do we get rid of that going forward? And so I really think this book is going to be absolutely groundbreaking. And again, I have to, I have to give absolute kudos to Dr. Shauna Springer. I mean, she's the one that is literally making this happen. And I, and I owe her for that. Well, it's the, I think it's unique as well too. And that's almost like a one of a kind to where, how you just explained about how, you know, each chapter has the first part about you, you know, and, and your voice on, you know, what had transpired, what led into each one and then her breaking that down from, you know, her perspective. And, and that's vital as well too, because that's what actually puts it in relation to the individuals reading the book as if it's the, oh, okay, hey, I understand this now and being able to relate that to themselves and, you know, taking that knowledge and applying it to themselves, you know, because again, you know, with, with the awareness and addressing the stigma, let's just say, you know, if, if we don't have the different, the lifestyles that others have been through and, you know, that explanation of that, you know, because individuals, we know that law enforcement has the job but how many individuals actually know what that entails you know you see tv media and everything else and it's the that's like with so much of the different lashback and adversity like pushed against law enforcement in today's culture today's society it's unreal you know because when you look at the the good being done opposed to the, the negatives that happen you know the negatives are minute you know but in the same aspect it's individuals don't realize what you've seen in your career, you know, that the trauma after trauma. And it's one of the things I was saying is, is that, you know, you go from one call to the next without being able to talk about that last incident that may have been a traumatic experience. You may have just, you know, pulled a baby from a, a dumpster and then had to go just go to a next call. I mean, how do you process things like that, you know, without actually reaching out to someone and during your career, how much, of, I'm not going to say restriction, but I know a lot of officers, they don't like to go to their superiors or the supervisors and say that something is bothering them because of the fear of leave or fear of, you know, you having to take time off. I mean, so how much of that did you, that held you back from admitting certain things that may have been bothering you during your time of service? I mean, was any of that an issue back then? Was that any part in why you didn't, you know, address certain things that were weighing on you mentally or? Well, it's, it's absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing is in the academy, I can go all the way back to military basic training. I can go into my specialized training, the police academy. You know, we're taught to be warriors. We are taught to be invincible. And we, and we have to have that mindset. We have to go in the most dangerous situations that you can imagine, whether it's an active shooter situation, domestic violence, a huge bar brawl, um, you know, whatever the case may be, we are the last resort. When people call 911, we are the ones that have to come. We are the ones that have to bring order, you know, to chaos. We have to put our lives on the line every single day. And so, you know, we have this uniform on, we have this badge, our, our belts, 
our ballistic vests. And literally for years, I felt untouchable. I felt unvisible. And I didn't stop, take time to absorb really all this trauma that I was seeing. But I can look back now and literally my first week on FTO, which is the field training program right out of the police academy, I remember two very distinct, just very, very traumatic calls. And I remember after we left the call, I remember going back to my car with my training officer and we joked about it. And that's literally how you learn to deal with it is you learn that, hey, you can't show emotion. You can't show that anything's affecting you. So what do you do is you kind of just joke about it. You laugh it off. And it's not because we think it's funny because we don't. It's like this way of kind of self-protecting ourselves and not showing our partners or showing the other people next to us that, hey, this is messed up, man. Like what I just saw, you know, I could never even imagine. I haven't even seen in the worst movie and I literally just had to deal with it. So that's the point is it's not addressed. It's not talked about. And because of that, we don't ask for help. We don't talk about our feelings. I mean, I remember my agency, even back then, was pretty progressive. We had peer support. We had a contracted therapist. We did critical incident debrief for the big calls. These were the bigger calls, not the ones that we see day in and day out. But I remember going to those and literally it's like, okay, we're off the street. Let's do this. Let's go through the motions. Let's check the box and let's get back to work. But I was never sharing emotions. I was never sharing feelings during that. I was literally just, okay, we did this, we did that. It was very matter of fact. And I remember after my shooting, the same thing. All I could think about was, I want to get back to work. I don't want people to think that or know this is bothering me. So I'm going to go to this thing. I'm just going to say what I have to say. I'm not going to talk about feelings. I'm not going to talk about these nightmares I'm having. I'm not going to talk about how I'm isolating and I'm depressed and I'm anxious and I'm on high alert. I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm just going to talk about what I need to so I can get back to work. And so what we have to do is go all the way back to the beginning in the police academy and talk about this stuff because we don't. It's not taught in the police academy. We learn how to shoot guns, drive cars, do arrest and control techniques. We learn about the law. And that's all great. We need to know that. But I can't remember anybody coming in and talking about the effects of the job and how it affected them personally, because that could be a game changer. That's how you start introducing it is you bring in veteran officers or firefighters or paramedics or dispatchers, and you have them come in and speak to these soon to be new officers and just be real and show that it's okay to talk about this. But we don't. We're getting better. But I can't tell you how many people I meet where, you know, the, the bottom line is they don't trust anybody in their organization enough to talk about this stuff. And they don't trust counselors. They don't trust therapists. They may not have a clergy member or a chaplain. And so they just bottle it up and they keep it inside. And that is detrimental to our health. That is what pushes us over the edge to suicide. And that's what we haven't talked about here today is that as cops, as firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. That That's a fact, period. But why don't we talk about that? Why don't we address that? Because we're not as likely to get shot by somebody as we are as to kill ourselves. I mean, stop and think about that. And how much training do we do as far as firearms and tactics 
and safety. But how much training do we do for our mental health, for our mental wellness? We don't. Yeah, and that's huge. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad you just said it in that context because that is true. I, I just I ran a commercial the other day that was going over, and it had the deaths. You know, it was just for 2019. But what I wasn't able to encapsulate in there was how it's progressively getting worse. You know, through the years. I mean, you just see the numbers getting higher, and I believe one of them was 88, 88 deaths, and it's like opposed to 118 of killing themselves. And it, it's, it's a sad truth. And like you just said, you know, how do you get that, that mental compression off, you know, and how do you speak up? You know, and a lot of times we do have like the, the peer support networks, but how do we feel comfortable going into that peer network or speaking to a peer, you know, and that's why I, I try to encourage, I try to encourage, I try to encourage the leading by example aspect of it. So if I seen someone that was, you know, the, the King Kong of the agency going in and talking to somebody, that's going to make me like, okay, well, hey, even, even he's going in and talking to somebody or speaking up that it's bothering him, you know, and I still believe just, you know, I've had this conversation with uh, Christopher Hoyer, Chris Gregorio, almost everybody I bring on here that it has to start. It has to start at the academy, you know, because if you're not alarming individuals, you know, and I don't, I don't want to say you put that scare factor in there, but you have to at some point because, you know, individuals know that, yeah, they're going to run into it, but they don't understand that, I mean, every day there's going to be an incident. How do you deal with that? You know, who do you talk to about that? You know, and it, it's not taught. Mental health isn't taught. It's just something that like you, I mean, you nailed it on the head. Just, just deal with it, you know, and just go on to the next one. And then all of a sudden that, that mental explosion that happens, it's, if, if you don't know how to handle it, you're not going to handle it. You know I mean? And there's way too many people eating their own gun and it's, we never have that answer as to why, you know what I mean? But, you know, individuals that serve, they know why, because they know all the different traumas that they've been exposed to and they understand that mental pressure. But, nobody's really speaking up and getting others to speak out about what is bothering them. You know, so that's why like, I, I try to push and that's why I love to have, you know, these interviews, I'm blessed that you, you know, came on the show today to, you know, kind of address this because this is one of the things that I want to make happen. You know, I want to schedule these different things to where I run the demographics on law enforcement agencies that have peer support networks and then bring in individuals like yourself, you know, Christopher Hoyer, Ray Bashirs into these agencies and, and make it happen one way or another. It has to happen. I mean, the, the stigmas, like I said, it, it, every year it's just progressively getting worse and nobody's addressing it. Nobody's making it happen. And the steps you're taking to do that, it's, it's commendable. It's a blessing. And how do we, you know, make this, I'm not going to say mandated, but it, to where it becomes the normal rather than, as you've stated, you know, the not talking about everything has been the normal for since the beginning of time to where, you know, we have to have this persona about the, hey, I'm the protector. I'm, you know, I'm tough guy, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, how do we get it to where the new stigma is the fact that, hey, look, you know, make sure that you get this mental flush and, 
I mean, when do you, I mean, another important topic as well is, you know, when do you talk about those incidences that are like weighing heavy on you? You know, do you do it directly or do you wait that 24, 72 hours of when everything has been processed? You know what I mean? I mean, what, in, in your mind, what have, would have been easier? And I mean, now that you recognize that you do talk about things as they happen, you know, what kind of time frame? I mean, would you suggest that somebody reaches out or talks about an incident that bothers them more than let's say the last one? Well, waiting doesn't help. You know, I'm not talking about investigations. I'm not talking about protocol interviews from the district attorney. I'm just talking about if something's bothering you, the longer that you keep it inside, the longer you keep it on your shoulders, the more negative effects that's going to have. And it's a fact that the longer that you wait to get help, like in my case, I waited four years. That makes my recovery that much longer where I truly believe if you're talking about these things as they're happening throughout your career, you make it a norm that you can go an entire 30 year plus career and you can make it out mentally healthy on the other side. I, I firmly believe that. I mean, a big part of this is just not knowing you're alone, having trust. Trust is absolutely critical. You know, you, you can have all these peer support programs and all this stuff on paper, but the officers, the firefighters, dispatchers, paramedics, they need to be able to know that they can fully trust the people they're talking to, that it's not going to leak out, that other people aren't going to find out about it, that it's not going to negatively affect their career. So if you don't have that trust, it's not going to happen. And that's why you really have to know your people. You have to build relationships with your people. You know, for me, <clears throat> I couldn't trust anybody in my agency organization to talk to about this stuff. I mean, it's kind of ironic because <clears throat> I, I trust them with my life where, you know, they'll go, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I'll trust them with my life to go into like an active shooter situation or DV or whatever the case may be. And I know they have my back. Like, oh, they're going to be there. Like, if I have to start fighting with somebody, they're going to jump on and we're going to get this person in custody. Like, I, I have no doubt about that, the people I worked with. But why couldn't I go to them and talk about my feelings? Why couldn't I go to them and express how I was feeling? And again, it comes back to that stigma, the shame, the trust. And ironically enough, it wasn't until I started my recovery journey, I started going to a therapist who is culturally competent. And that's absolutely critical. Huh. You know, the therapist, the counselor, they have to get it. They have to work with first responders. Fortunately, I got an amazing one who all she worked with was first responders. And she told me about these first responder support group meetings. They have them all over. They're an hour long. They're a discussion meeting. Sometimes they're in a 12-step format. They're open to any first responder, whether you're retired, active, or out on injury. Um, I actually still go to them. I'm going to one tonight here locally. And that's where, for the first time in my professional, even personal life that I saw, is people opening up. I mean, literally, I remember I didn't want to go to these meetings. And I had called the guy that runs it. He kind of talked me down, said, hey, look, just show up. And so the first like three meetings, I just sat there and I listened. I didn't say anything, but I was really taken back by how open and honest these people were. Like literally, they didn't know who I was. I mean, we just only use first names. We don't use agencies. We don't use last names. 
And these people literally that just met me are sharing the deepest, darkest things that you can imagine. And some of the stuff was resonating with me. Like I was like, yeah, that's, that's me. Like I get that. Like I do that. And so that's where I got the initial strength to start sharing in a group setting was these meetings. You know, I could share with my therapist, but by going to these meetings and every week there'd be new people or there would be people that hadn't been in, you know, years or months. And again, the same thing started happening. And then I started sharing. And what I saw was people that really, they didn't judge me. Like they looked at me with compassion and empathy and they, they, they understood it. You know, they didn't look at me like I was crazy. And that was, that was so powerful to know that there were so many other people just like me, you know, successful people who had great careers, who have done great things, who are still doing great things. But to see that courage, and that's what normalized it for me, was going to those meetings. And eventually I went to a week-long retreat called the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat. And I'm actually going back again next week to Volunteers Appear. But again, that program, same thing. Within a day, I saw a room full of people sharing things with people they literally just met, things they'd never shared in the entire lifetime, like not even with spouses, not with siblings or family members. I'm talking about childhood trauma that had been weighing on their shoulders their entire life. And they literally had never spoken a word about it. And I saw that change and I still see it when I go back. And that is power. That is true power, knowing you're not alone, knowing you're in a trusted, safe environment where it's going to stay there. It's not going to go outside that environment and people are going to have your back to the fullest. You know, and, you know, one of the things you said that is just really, 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 really powerful is that in the aspect of, you know, reaching out and others being, you know, in that environment, in that setting, knowing that others have been there and done that, you know, because there's a strength in, because earlier you said about how, you know, dealing with a counselor that is with first responders, you know, so you take a counselor that, you know, read a book and is trying to tell you what you're dealing with or ways to overcome that opposed to somebody that every day that they went out there and served, that they were really, <clears throat> excuse me, exposed to that. And there's power in that. And I mean, you nailed it on the head where, you know, being comfortable because you're speaking to somebody that has been there, done that, and they can relate. Yeah, you can read a book and get emotion. You can watch a movie, you know, feel some kind of emotion. But being able to know like here and now that, oh, hey, I, I experienced something similar. Hey, I was in this career similar. You know, and a lot of individuals that, you know, all the way across this board right here have been exposed to that. And one of the ones that's overlooked the most is this right here. You know, dispatchers, there's day after day, they're sending people out there. I mean, they're hearing the frantic voice on the line and they never get any closure about what happened about that response. The 911 calls, sending, you know, fire, law enforcement, EMTs to a home you know, where is their closure as far as the, hey, I wonder if a life got saved or I wonder if they, and a lot of people don't think about stuff like that. And they have a lot of, their, their suicide rates are alarming, you know, and nobody wants to talk about that either. 
You know, I mean, how much of that mental strength is put in that third trading? You know, one thing I have to admit is that I didn't even realize that until I went to West Coast post-trauma retreat. When I was there, it changed my perspective on everything. And, and there are dispatchers who are clients and peers. And that was so eye-opening, but not just dispatchers, like firefighters, for instance. You know, I used to think that paramedics and firefighters, like they deal with medical stuff. Like that's their job. Like it doesn't phase them. Like, you know, whatever. We're at the same scenes. Like they deal with that. But no, dispatchers, firefighters, paramedics, cops, we're all human. So it doesn't matter what your training is, what your career is. Trauma is trauma. And all of these things affect us in the same way. But I didn't get that. I mean, I consider myself a pretty intelligent guy. Captain of the Air Force, sergeant, distinguished career. But I didn't think about that. I didn't have that perspective when I was working. And I feel bad about that now. I'm, I feel guilty. But I know there's a lot of other people out there that I don't think they've stopped and, and taken that into consideration because I think what it is is they haven't dealt with their own trauma. And a lot of people who are suffering with trauma, they do what I did, which is they put up a front. They become just unapproachable. They're like pissed off. They don't show emotion. Nothing bothers me. But literally, they're falling apart inside. And how, how much of the guilt? you know, weight on that mental health outside of the trauma that you were exposed to. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's the, Hey, you were exposed to that trauma, but how much of the guilt you carried, you know, played on your mental wellness? I mean, I have to live with the fact that I took a human life. That, that's the bottom line. Like you can talk about, Oh, well we signed up for this and yeah, I'll, you know, you say I'll, I'll do this if I have to, but the facts are that, most officers, 99% of officers are never involved in a fatal shooting. That's a fact. Okay. But I have to live with that. But how many paramedics and firefighters have to live with the fact when they get a fatal accident or collision and they didn't save that infant or they didn't save that mother who's bleeding out in the front seat with the child in the back seat? Or how many dispatchers have to live with the fact when they're talking to a suicidal person on the phone and they're trying to talk them down and they literally hear them take their own life? Or they hear during a domestic and they take someone else's life. I mean, trauma is trauma. You can read about it. You can talk about it. But until you've experienced it, you don't know. But the facts are, first responders, we do know. All first responders know. We're all the same. We're all human. And that's what it comes down to is let's be human. We're not invincible. We're not robots. We're human. And that's key. I mean, it really is, you know, because it's the, from the beginning in the academy, you know, in, in basic training, like you, you stated it earlier to where it's the, you're put into where this persona to where you're that guy, you know, you're the protector and, you know, you're going in you're going to be facing, you're the, you're the baddest of the baddest, but how do you deal with all of what you're doing? you know, and witnessing, you know, the witnessing part is what a lot of people don't get is that, you know, and then when you take what you've already witnessed and then you, you know, carry that trauma about having to take another's life, it's, I can't pretend that I know what that's like, you know, even others that have, you know, been in that same instance, you know, everybody deals with things differently. You know what I mean? Again, we're human beings, but 
taking all the trauma that you've seen through your whole career and then adding that on top of it and being able to process that, you know, how do you process that in a moment? Like you said, you know, talking about it as it happens, you know, to where, you know, a, it's still fresh in your mind to where that, that fresh emotion is always, cause that's going to be the most important thing that we deal with as individuals is that fresh emotion, you know, to where if we let it build up through the course of time, it's, it's gone. You know, and, and so during your career, how much of what you've seen in the field did you bring home with you as far as, you know, sharing with your wife the conversation about what you've seen to the day? Or was that something that you kind of sheltered from, you know, your family? Well, that's one of my biggest mistakes, because my plan from the very beginning, even when I was in the police academy, was work was going to be work and home life was going to be home. I was never going to mix the two. I was never going to bring the job home. So what I did was, is I literally isolated my spouse at the time from my job, from what I was doing. So she had no clue of the things I was seeing or experiencing. And I'm not saying that our significant others or spouses or partners should know like the gruesome details, but they do need to know, like when we come home pissed off and are bad mood, it's not because of them. And whether it's even just a brief conversation, like, look, you know, I dealt with a bad child call today. I just need like 30 minutes to decompress. You know, let me go upstairs, get myself together. I'll be back down and, you know, we can talk about it if you want. Um, but you have to open that dialogue. But for me, I never opened the dialogue from day one. So when the really big incident happened, I didn't talk about it because I never talked about it before that. So all these hundreds of little incidents, which I should have talked about, I didn't. And so, you know, for anybody watching or listening, don't do what I did. Talk to your spouses, talk to your significant others. If you're in a bad mood, if you're down, if you're upset, let them know it's not because of them. Explain to them what it is and why it is. Don't put the burden on them because they're walking around in eggshells thinking it's them and they don't want to make us worse or make us more pissed off or put us in a bad mood. And that's why communication is key to this whole thing. It's sharing, not just at work, but definitely at home, more importantly. 100%. And Jennifer, hey, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I, I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking me to come on. I was not expecting this at all, um, but Always. thank you for letting me weigh in. Um, well, it's important. I mean, and that's the reason why I do what I do. You know, I mean, I, I know the show and everything else is kind of new to a lot of the viewers, a lot of the people on here, but it's the, we, we have to start doing this. And that's the, one of the reasons why it was, I had to find a way to get, you know, Michael on here because you know, what he's doing is what needs to happen nationwide. I mean, worldwide, you know, and I, I want to engage the viewers because what you see is important to what it is that he does currently, you know, because of the message that he's trying to spread. And it's just, I, I want as many viewers to do the comments, to ask to come on here, because, you know, I may not have all the questions that's really going to kind of trigger Michael to provide the information or the guidance that thousands are seeking right now, you know, so. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. Um, and Michael, um, Michael S. Um, we were, I was just, again, talking with you the other day about some of these pieces, but yeah, I'm 
um, hearing everything you're saying and I'm honored and I can't wait to, to read your new book. Um, and the idea that, you know, what you're bringing home is affecting the spouses is so incredibly true with some basic background information is, um, my husband's a retired law enforcement officer, um, here in Massachusetts, um, due to PTSD, um, to the point that he was hospitalized, um, for suicidal ideations and depression and everything that came along with it. Um, and was medically retired in November of 2018. And still to this day, we are working through because exactly something that you just said about not communicating. Um, he did not communicate about any of the calls, difficult or otherwise, for 16 years. And it just built and built and built and built. And as an empathetic human being that so many first responders are, um, he just, he couldn't take in anymore. Um, and ultimately that what's, that's what led to, um, his suicidal, um, ideations and such. So, um, to know that we have people who are advocating for the communication, um, is so incredibly important. Um, so thank you for, thank you for that, for sure. And, um, one of the other things that you also said was about, um, you know, again, that the, the trauma is trauma piece. I originally launched, um, my blue line coaching, um, company um, back in February for specifically law, uh, law enforcement. Um, and then realized through a conversation I was having with my husband at the time, just about a month ago. And um, he said, Jen, you know, the dispatchers are hearing the call. The firefighters are responding to the call. The police officers are at the call. We've got so many levels and the trauma that they're all experiencing is, is the same. And to, to exclude um, the opportunity to connect with first responders um, across all um, and their families is something that I am just so honored to be able to do and support through through coaching. Um, I see coaching as something that is almost, I'm, I'm hoping at some point to use it as a, a huge way of preventing um, mental illness struggles as a career continues. If this is something, and um, again, conversation, just talking about the the experiences and, and learning ways to move through it in really productive and phenomenal ways. And I don't want to take anything away from from certain um, you know therapies and such because um, they are so incredibly vital as well to move through these mental health challenges. But using coaching as also a tool. Um, I think is going to be incredibly helpful and something that is absolutely needed in all areas of first responders and, um, and their spouses, their family members. So that's just what I wanted to bring to the conversation. Cause I think everything you guys have talked about tonight, I've just, yep. 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 And what can we do and how can I help? And then, so Michael also going into, I know you're still so active in everything else that you do. You know, you got the the faith for uh, the faith fight finish foundation that uh, that you are uh, the for the law enforcement mental health and uh, mental health and wellness committee member, and you also do the first responder support network. And now, with the first responder support network, what it what is it that you know, I was telling individuals in the beginning about? you know, then becoming a volunteer and everything else there. So, you know, what is the first responder support network for the viewers at home and for any individuals that may need to reach out? So the first responder support network, it's based out of Northern California and they have a couple different components. Um, one of the main ones is what I mentioned earlier, the West coast post trauma retreat. So they run that and they also run what's called SOS, which is the spouses, significant others program. So, WCPR, the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, is a week-long 
retreat for first responders. So paramedics, firefighters, dispatchers, cops. And usually there's six clients with a mixture of those people I just mentioned. And there's also chaplains, there's therapists, clinicians. They volunteer also for a week at a time. And the meat and potato are peers, people that actually have been through the program like I have. You know, some went 10 years ago, some went six months ago. And so we all go back and volunteer and give back to this program. Now, there is a cost for WCPR and usually work comp insurance, risk management, oftentimes will pay for it. Um, there also are scholarships and payment plans. The nice thing is if you go through the West Coast post-trauma retreat like I did as a client, if you finish that, then you can be invited back to be a volunteer peer. Uh, but more importantly, your spouse or significant other is eligible to go through the SOS program. And for that, there is no cost. And that is, again, both these programs are absolutely life-changing, life-saving programs. Um, in addition to those two programs, they do training. Um, they also do advanced peer support training. Here in California, we have what's called POST, uh, Peace Officers and Standards Training. And you can actually get your advanced peer training support from California POST um, by doing it at the retreat. And that's something that agencies can send their peer support people through, and they can end up getting reimbursed through POST. So phenomenal, phenomenal programs. Um, again, I, I went through in May of 2017, early on in my recovery, and it, and it was life-saving. And that's why I go back now. I go back every single year and I give back, but I also get more back as well. And so for anybody that is suffering, you know, just Google it, First Responder Support Network. Another thing, and I see you have the screen up, is if you go to the resources section on there, um, there's a section where you can actually find these first responder support meetings that I was talking about. It's a little PDF form. It has them broken down by the city. There's a phone number, like a contact person, and you call them and basically they'll tell you where the meeting is and what time and make sure that, you know, you're vetted and then you can start going to these meetings. So, um, and those meetings are free. I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal resource. I mean, if you don't do anything at all, if you don't want to report this to your agency, if you don't want to use EAP, if you don't want to talk to somebody at home, go to a first responder support meeting. It's absolutely free. It's hundred percent confidential. They have them all over the U S they have them all over California. And, um, yeah, so you go there, click on that bottom link right there. Looks like it's taking a second, but a, a PDF. Up. Okay. So oh, yeah, the PDF, the listing for the, uh, yeah. So like, you know, just as an example, so right at the top is Sacramento. It has the time. It has the location, but on the right, that's the most important part. It has the contact person. So it has their cell phone, usually work phone number, emails. The first thing you want to do is you don't want to just show up to one of these meetings. I recommend calling that contact person, discuss with them so you can find out what these meetings are about, get more comfortable, maybe even meet the person beforehand. 
and then go to the meetings. Like I said, I'm actually going one tonight here in uh, Fairfield, California. So great, great resource. Um, I, I can't stress it enough. And if you're interested in the retreat on the main website, you can contact them. There's a phone number, there's an email and just, you know, there is a waiting list. I will tell you for this retreat, uh, but it is well, well worth waiting. And a lot of times you can be put on a standby list. Like for me, initially I had a year long wait and they ended up bumping me up. They called me up and said, Hey, we've got a retreat next week. Can you go? And I was like, yes, please. I'm going. And so, this also program has one specifically for the spouses and others as well, too, huh? Well, that's what I mentioned in the beginning was it's called SOS. So there's WCPR for the first responders. SOS is for the spouses and significant others. And if you go through WCPR, your spouse or significant other is eligible to go to the SOS program at no cost. And, you know. Again, just check out the site. There's lots of information there. You can read about it, but it's an excellent resource. One thing that we didn't talk about that I do want to talk about is another program I went through in August of 2020, and that's called Save a Warrior. And it's known as SAW. You have it in the bottom there scrolling. And the thing about this program is that it's not just open to first responders, but it's also open to military. So active military veterans it's open to all first responders whether you're retired active out on injury and this program focuses on complex post-traumatic stress or childhood trauma you know a lot of us first responders don't want to talk about this but many of us have some form of childhood trauma oftentimes it could be very mild it could be like an emotionally distant parent or a parent who's an addict or an alcoholic, or it can be very extreme, like physical abuse, sexual abuse. But we often gravitate towards careers in the military and as a first responder, because at an early age, we have to overcome adversity. We become caretakers. We have to be resilient. And it actually makes us very good at what we do. But the problem is, if we don't address the childhood trauma, it stacks on top of the battlefield trauma or the street trauma. And now we've got two things that are overlapping and they become intertwined. And then on top of that, we get administrative betrayal, which we haven't really talked about. But, you know, just as an example, let's say as a child, you're abandoned by a family member. And so now years later, you're not even thinking about it. You go into the military, you go into law enforcement and you find this new family this family that's going to be there forever for you that has your back. Well, guess what? Sometimes that family abandons you. And so now you've got this administrative betrayal on top of the childhood trauma and the work trauma or the combat trauma. So this program though, the amazing thing is it is free. And I'll say that again, save a warrior is free. There's absolutely no cost for you. It's all funded by donations. They have two locations. The main campus is in Ohio, and they're actually building a brand new multi-million dollar facility, which is going to allow them to get more people through this program in a year. And there's also a location in Southern California. And all you have to do is get yourself to either location. So they don't pay for the transportation, but they provide the housing, the meals, and the entire program. And I have to tell you, I mean, this program is priceless. 
I mean, I would have paid, I can't even tell you, $100,000 more to get what I got out of it. This program, even this is two years after I started my recovery, and I didn't even realize I needed this program. And this program gave me that final piece that I needed to get over and to continue on my path. So save a warrior, just Google it. And the thing with this is there's a link where you can actually apply online. It takes five minutes. And what they do is they set up a rostering phone call where somebody will call you from Save a Warrior. And literally you have one conversation with one person. And in that conversation, they decide whether or not this program is for you. And they will tell you at the end of that phone call, you've got a spot in Save a Warrior. And I'm telling you right now, this program will save your life. It is phenomenal. Awesome. You know, and one of the things that I brought up, you know, when I when I started this broadcast before I had the pleasure of bringing you on here, was that in, you know, because we all have the passions about, you know, our careers, significant others, you know, the friends, everything else in our life as well, too, that when so we have the fulfilling career and we're, we're meeting our passion there, but what happens when we step out? Like you just, you just hit it on the head when you were saying that where all of a sudden our brothers and sisters that we once had that family that we were so attached to, whether we're in military, whether we're, you know, law enforcement, first responder, whatever the case may be. If we have that fulfilling career to where that is our second family, it's our extended family. Now all of a sudden we retire or we step out for whatever reason we step out. And that camaraderie, that family is gone. And that in itself can create so much mental stress, mental compression, more than so the trauma of the job that we may have experienced. You know, and it's one of them things that isn't spoken about. It's one of those things that we do need to address. It's one of the things that, you know, programs like this, like you just stated, you know, gives you back that family that you feel that you had lost just because you left that career. You know, because again, and that's what like I was, you know, kind of explaining when I was giving your intro before, you know, again, having the pleasure of bringing you on here was that your passion started from when you were five years old, maybe even before, maybe before you knew it, you know, but you had that passion and you followed that. So, you know, up, upon your retirement and you stepping out and uh, medically retiring in 2018, you know, I can't imagine nobody else can imagine that, that maybe that, that loss of family sense in that, because you always had that passion about that fulfilling career. And then, you know, it's a, now that you step out, I mean, you're still wired and programmed to be kind of like looking at things as you don't just live your daily life, but you know, that, that family that was once there, you know, where is it now? You know, so. Well, that, that's the beautiful thing is that I've gotten so much more family now through the West coast post-trauma retreat and save a warrior. I mean, true brothers and sisters that I know, I can call anytime, day or night, and they will pick up the phone and they will be there for me 100%. So that's the beauty of these programs is that, you know, you may have lost family, you may be losing your military family or first responder family, but I'm here to tell you, you're going to get a whole new family that has your back to the fullest and will be there when you need them most. Awesome. And then, so what's the uh, first and wellness? You want to review that real quick with us or? So first and wellness, I'm on the advisory board for them and they're doing great things. 
in the first responder world for firefighters, uh, police officers, and they're really into overall health and wellness. And they provide a lot of different programs for agencies um, that focus on both the mental health and the physical health. And so they're, they're out there doing great things. Um, obviously, you've got the website up. They've got a Facebook. They're on Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, but they are, are working with a lot of agencies here in Northern California. And I know they're starting to spread out as well. Um, but definitely worth looking into. It's a great, great program. And as you can see there, they provide programs for EMT, police, and fire. And then, so is there a is there a waiting for that as well too, or is like say I filled say I filled this form out right here for the scheduling a call? How how fast turnaround does it happen for the individuals that are reaching out? Well, for this program here, you know, this isn't this isn't for like people that are in crisis. This is more or less um, people who want to get programs started within their agencies to focus on physical health and mental health, and so. If you fill out that form, you're going to get a call within three days, I believe, and someone's going to call you and contact you and give you more information on that program. Um, you know, the other two are literally week-long intensive retreats that you're going to attend, whereas these are programs that they can actually provide to you while you're at home. They can give you things that are virtual where you don't have to go somewhere else. They can also come to your agency and do trainings, do instruction. Um, so, yeah. Different, but both focused on the mental health and physical health. And, you know, another program that we haven't talked about, I'd like to bring up as well is um, for the people who are super faith based or um, that is where they find their strength. There is a, a program called the Mighty Oaks, and they actually have retreats all over the United States. And it's a faith based program. And it's for military and first responders. Um, they also have week-long programs where it's 100% free. You just have to get yourself there. Um, everything is provided. There is no cost to the person. Um, I'm actually going to be attending that program later this year. And they do have a location here in Southern California. But, I, but again, they have them all over the United States. And it's called Mighty Oaks Foundation. They have a Facebook um, is probably their best best way to get a hold of them is either Google Mighty Oaks Foundation or go to their Facebook page. And um, it's a real simple process. You can apply online and they'll have someone contact you. And literally the turnaround is pretty quick and they'll give you the locations, the dates and ask, hey, which one of these works for you? So definitely another program for people that are watching or listening is the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Yeah, you got it right there. And you can see that, you know, right there, apply now. It's that easy. You just click that little button and, and you're off. And this program is is doing phenomenal things. And, you know, the, the key is that I never knew about any of these resources back when I was working. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is really word of mouth. I mean, a lot of these places have big sites. They have lots of donors. I mean, they're known to a lot of people, but still there's so many people that don't know about these programs. 
And so a lot of this, you know, you start going to these first responder support meetings or you go to WCPR, you go to Save a Warrior, you start finding out about more and more resources. And, you know, for me, there's not one magic program. It's it's like all these different things right. give, me, give me a different piece to my recovery. And that's what I want people to understand is that, you know, there's not one magic thing that works for everybody. There's a combination approach that works for me and works for most people. And you really just have to find out what works for you. And then, so how, how many combinations are there as far as the, like you just said, as far as the, there may not be that, that magic one. I mean, but is it something that you would suggest that individuals, you know, even though that one may work for them and, would you suggest that an individual doesn't stop there, that they do look for the ones that kind of solidify what they've already been through or the growth aspect of it? You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a personal choice, but you know, I, like when I first, I remember I went to West coast post-trauma retreat. I came out of there on an absolute high. I mean, I was literally same with save a warrior. When you get out of those programs, it's just like heaven's open, the lights coming down, like everything looks more beautiful, but realize that a lot of these programs teach you skills and things that you need to do. You need to do them on a regular basis. A lot of this stuff is perishable. It's like, it's like I equate it to physical fitness. You know, if you go to the gym, like solid for six months and you get all ripped and in shape, but then you just stop working out and you eat like crap. And a year later, you're not going to be in the same place. So you absolutely have to, my recommendation is these programs Go to all of them if you can. I mean, literally two of them have no cost. So there is no barrier. You know, I'm not saying go to them all at once, like space them out. Go to just one and see how you're doing. See where you're at. See what you need. Um, I'm actually in a program right now called Recovery and Resilience from Mission 22, which is a year-long program. And it's open to combat veterans and they're starting to offer to first responders. And it's a year-long program where... I'm doing meditation. I'm doing special readings. They fund a CrossFit membership or a community-based fitness program. I've got a health coach I meet with every two weeks. They give me a Garmin that monitors my vitals, keeps track of my health. And so even for me, you know, I started my recovery back in 2017, but yet I'm still on a journey. And so just, you know, if you find these beneficial, positive things, it's just like working out, you know, maintain your health, maintain your mental health. Don't just stop. I mean, if it works for you and you're good, okay, well, maybe you're lucky. Maybe you're one of the, the lucky few that it just all worked out. But for me, that wasn't the case. You so see, me, and a lot of that too, to where, like with you being able to recognize what you just stated, to where you see a lot of individuals, you know, because I've been doing the whole mental health for you know, since 2006. And you see a lot of individuals that, yeah, hey, this is great, but it's for maybe just that one thing that they were working on. They don't realize because they've been blocking out all the rest of the trauma for so long that there's still all of that baggage to deal with. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, hey, I'm good now because the main thing that was weighing on my mind, I dealt with. But now all of a sudden, it's like you still have the plethora of all the other different struggles or traumas that, you know, you may have, you know, gone through that one day you wake up and now that's the new one coming on. you. So, you know, 
continuously, like you just said, you know, continuously going to the gym to where, you know, if we care about our physical health, you know, we have to care about mental health because, you know, it's a good mental health is going to, you know, generate a good physical uh, well-being and everything else as well, too. So, Absolutely. You're spot on. And I remember when I went through the West Coast post-trauma retreat, there was things I didn't address and didn't work on because I didn't think I needed to. It just didn't even occur to me. And so to your point, you know, you may deal with one thing and something else may come up as you're dealing with that, that you didn't even realize because you forgot about it. I mean, I know that may sound strange, but literally, you know, there's things that happen that we forget about or we just put so far away that because we don't ever want to talk about it or relive it. But those are the things that we need to address. Those are the things that we need to get off our shoulders and talk about. So, yeah, you know, you may be working on one thing, but there may be some other things you need to work on, too. So you're, you're exactly right on that point. Well, and that's that's the beauty of the group settings, because it's going to be in that instance to where someone's sharing the event or the trauma that they experienced, that it's like, oh, man. I forgot that I went through this moment, you know, back in my life and things like that. So now you do have the opportunity again, because of that's, that's why peer networks are always, always, always so strong because it's that when you know that somebody else has been there, now you're more comfortable that, Oh, Hey, I'm not the only person. I don't feel, you know, so isolated in myself, in my own head, because there's somebody else that has experienced those traumas or tragedies or, just life experiences. I mean, because that's at, at a point where it comes to, you know, Absolutely. and, and when, when you go around and you do your speaking, you know, what are the main points that, that you speak about? Is it more along the lines of the awareness that how much of it is in uh, preparation for what they're about to experience, you know? So. Well, when I speak, I literally share my story and I, I share, a lot of it and it's powerful, but you know, the main parts are all the mistakes that I made along the way, all the spots, the points where I should have asked for help when I should have gotten help. Like here are the warning signs. These are the things to look out for. And so I go through all that. And then more importantly, I finish with how did I recover? How did I get to where I'm at today? And it's a process. There's a lot of work behind that. And so I'm only using my personal story as an example, just so that people can see it is possible and that they aren't alone. And I guarantee you something I talk about is going to resonate with almost everybody at some point. Why? Because we're human, because we chose this profession for a reason and because we've seen and dealt with a lot of the same trauma time and time again and they all affect us the same way you know and that's the beauty about you writing that book you know and even more so the fact that you know dr springer shauna springer was also there along with you you know what i mean because it's the and like i was telling christopher hoyer to where i, I wish more individuals like yourself you know, that's in the career of being first responder, even military that, you know, would actually put it on paper because there are individuals that, yeah, it's one thing going into a support group and talking about things, but being able to sit in the comfort of, you know, your home, your office or anything else and reading your words, reading what you've been through and reading how you dealt with that finally. And, you know, came to light about the recognition of it, you know, an individual is able to 
utilize your book as a study guide, basically, as they're going through there. You can highlight, you can take notes, you can, you know, have a self-reflection that, hey, look, you know, you know, you know, Sergeant uh, Subaru, you know, went through this. I'm also going through this. Hey, how did he deal with this? You know, and it becomes that step by step to where, hey, it may not be you have to take your exact ways, but you have to take away. You have to find your way, you know, and it's again, it's a blessing that you took the time to write the book. And I know, like you said, you know, you had to come outside of your shell in order to do that, you know, and even just to, you know, speak out and actually ask for help in the first place. Like you just, you know, when you set up raising your hand, you know, and the how much of going into like the academies i mean i know you've addressed this a few times you know during this interview and everything else as far as like with the the cadets going in you know how do we overcome this stigma and make it to where that mental health training is discussed early on rather than in an officer an emt firefighter or you know even military personnel finding out on their own you know what i mean well it's simple you just have people like me go in and talk to them and share share openly share truthfully and that's how you started i mean it's it's actually very simple it's not complicated what it comes down to is our academies have a you know a set amount of time like in california when i went through it was like 880 hours and you have to cram all this stuff that's required by the state. You have to have it. It's, it's part of the curriculum. And so the real answer is, well, how hard would it to be to add one hour or even two hours where you bring in one or two people, you have them come in, you know, not the first day of the academy, maybe towards the end after they've started to learn all these other things. And you go in there. And you just spill it. You just share it as a human. Because I remember back when I was in the academy and I remember every time an instructor would come in and I would see their badge on and I'd see the gun or I'd see their polo shirt from their agency if they're in uniform. And I just sat, I was in awe. I was like, this is my dream. This is what I want to do. You know, these are the people that have done it. I want to learn from them. And we did that and we learned so much. But bring people in that want to talk about this. It's not going to scare cadets away where they're going to be like, I'm not going to do this job. I'm quitting. It's not going to do that. What it's going to do is plant a seed. It's not a cure-all, but it's going to plant a seed early on in their brain that this is normal, that we need to talk about it. Don't wait too long like this guy did because it almost cost him his life. You know, um, I remember when I went through the West Coast post-trauma retreat, they had somebody come in who actually shot himself in the face and he survived. And I can't tell you how powerful that was when he told his story and he comes back still. And every time I volunteer, I am just listening to a story and just in awe and just, I take it in and I absorb it. And I'm just, you know, because that's life. That's reality. Let's not hide it. Let's talk about it. Let's make it normal. Plant the seed early, carry it on through field training throughout the entire career. Make it normal. That's how you smash the stigma. You just make it normal. You make it routine. You make it to where it's not shocking. You know, it's not unusual. It's the norm. It's that simple. 
Awesome. You know, and that's one of the things that, you know, I've had on previous discussions and everything else as well, too. And I said it before, you know, again, I had the pleasure to bring you on here in regard to the superiors, the supervisors, the leading by example, you know, them making it normal. And, I, you know, and I've, I've said this in the past where during roll call, you know, is that perfect time, you know, when it's the ongoing part? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that in the academy, we, we have to start it fresh, but it, there's a way to keep it ongoing to where during roll call in the morning, hey, you know, have a peer network discussed in the morning or anything like that about anything that's bothering somebody, you know, because everybody has to attend roll call. There, there are mandatory trainings that, you know, a lot of officers and things like that don't attend, but it's, you know, roll call making that norm happen. It's it has to has to has to be done you know and that's why like you know i wanted to have this conversation with you to kind of find out you know what your calendar looks like you know being able to you know find these uh, agencies that would be very i mean which every agency would be you know, would benefit from having you come in there but it's the your story being shared with them you know and I, I can't wait for the release of your book and everything else as well too that way they got their little training guide and everything to go along with it but it's the again you can sit there and have anybody come in there that, that read a book you know like we spoke about earlier but you know who actually has been there who has actually done that experience that because there's just some things that you can't describe to somebody you know when somebody's pulling a baby out of a dumpster for the first time or responding to a domestic dispute and you know somebody gets killed right in front of you or you're trying to save a life and you can't save that life i mean there's so much trauma and like you just said about that gentleman that came into the the west coast uh, post-trauma retreat and talking about you know he already had that mental compression of where he wanted to take his own life shot himself in the face now think about the trauma that he's dealing with now think about the fact that he had enough courage to come in there and you know share that story to where another individual don't have to feel at the bottom to where they're comfortable talking to others about that and that's how it has to happen i mean because it is normal i mean we're all going to face stresses where you know some individual stresses are going to be more than that but and especially in the field you know military law enforcement first responders you're, you're seeing the worst of the worst every day i mean it's what the job is is to make sure you know nobody's nobody's calling 911 just to say hi to somebody something's going on there's a trauma there's a tragedy going on and now you know individuals as first responders military we're, we're volunteering yeah we i mean you, you may get paid uh you know for the career but that's even peanuts compared to the trauma that you're going to experience and that in itself is another whole discussion you know another friend posted a thing today about you know the the national average for firefighters being 18 dollars and five cents and you have mcdonald's paying people 21 dollars an hour and it's like where's the sense in that you know so and that's where like the the passion comes into you know why we as individuals you know sign up for the careers and going in you know but that doesn't mean that i signed up to have to bottle all of this trauma it has to be normalized like you just said we have to make it normal that you know when something does become that extreme and i don't care if a dog got ran over that may be something enough that just you know takes you to the top to where you need to talk to somebody i mean it, it has to has to has to become the normal and that's why you're a blessing and more individuals need to hear it that's why we want to talk about this now because other individuals have been bottling things for so long they still don't feel that you know there's somebody is there so and that's what 
I'm, I'm glad you brought up about the different retreats because it's then, hey, look, you know what? You don't have to admit you have things going on in your mind. You know, go somewhere else and talk to somebody. You know, if you're afraid that family or friends may find out about it, you know, first go to one of these retreats or something. You know, take take a vacation and, and go for, you know, whatever the amount of time is for these retreats. You know, so it's it's, it's a blessing, you know, and how much of what you do now in like with the counseling, how much of the stuff do, do you also take back out in the sharing to others that you see as far as the creating it as the norm? You still with me? for one moment here. Let me try to get back into the stream. It's a great point, Chris. I'd like to thank everyone for viewing today. And if you guys have any questions, you can reach out to Michael. I, I have it across at the bottom right here. His different contact information. You can follow him on the, the Instagram. You can reach out to the several different organizations that we've discussed during this broadcast. But, you know, we do need to make it normal in the different agencies. You know, talk to your fellow peers. You know, let them know, just do a buddy check, whether it's, you know, every day, just maybe just check on the next brother or sister that's in the field and everything else. But we do need to normalize the fact that it is okay to ask for help. I implore everyone to, if you see someone struggling, because we also need to start being able to recognize certain behaviors that you may see something is off with an individual, you know, in our squad or department, whatever the case is that we're serving. Okay. So, you know, just be mindful of that. You know, start being responsive to that. Suggest to your superiors that you have certain meetings. I know that Chris was saying about they're trying to set it up in their academy where they talk to the recruits and their family on a family day. And that's a great idea. You know, I mean, what better way to bring the family in? Because the family also has to recognize, you know, the traumas that are experienced on a day-to-day -day basis. Because, again, as, you know, Michael covered, where there were those instances to where he didn't bring that home to his family. You know, he thought he was protecting them and everything else where he didn't want to put that load of trauma on them. But we still need to discuss it with someone. We need to let others know that, you know, we are dealing with things and that things are affecting us as a whole. So I 
again, I thank everyone for viewing today. If you guys have any questions, comments, you know, reach out, you know, reach out to Michael. If, you know, your agency would like to have Michael, you know, come out, you know, let me know. I can convey the message over to him and I can do what I can to get him scheduled at your agency or if you yourself would like to find the different groups that Michael's a part of so that you're comfortable reaching out as well. You know, let me know, let him know, just make a comment on this post. He'll see it as well too. And Michael, I thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's a blessing having you on here. It's a blessing receiving all the different service that you've had in your career. And I thank you for your continued service and what it is that you do and actually raising the awareness, being the advocate and for the uh, first responder suicide prevention and everything else. So I implore everyone to reach out if you need anything. Everyone stay safe and stay blessed in all things. I love you all. Yeah.